The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now, for our featured presentation. At this hour... They report the level of the mysterious radiation continues to increase steadily. So long as this situation remains, government spokesmen warn that dead bodies will continue to be transformed into the flesh-eating ghouls. All persons who die during this crisis, from whatever cause, will come back to life to seek human victims unless their bodies are first disposed of by cremation. Our news cameras have just returned from covering such a search-and-destroy operation against the ghouls, this one conducted by Sheriff Conan McClellan in Butler County, Pennsylvania. So now let's go to that film report. All law enforcement agencies and the military have been organized to search out and destroy the marauding ghouls. The Survival Command Center at the Pentagon has disclosed that a ghoul can be killed by a shot in the head or a heavy blow to the skull. Officials are quoted as explaining that since the brain of a ghoul has been activated by the radiation, the plan is, kill the brain and you kill the ghoul. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. What does 1968 mean to you? I would think that most listeners of this show were either not born or are too young to remember that year. A year that saw the assassinations of both Robert F. Kennedy and the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. A year that saw America step up its involvement in Vietnam to unprecedented levels. A year that brought the alternative hippie lifestyle to the forefront. A year that saw the awakening of the feminist movement. A year that saw then-President Lyndon Johnson decide not to seek re-election for a second term. And a year that saw a very soft-spoken man launch a children's television show in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That man was Fred Rogers. And his show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, would go on to be one of the most well-regarded children's programs in history. Certain segments of Mr. Rogers' show were filmed by a local film production company in the city of Pittsburgh. That company's name was The Latent Image, which was run by three individuals, John Russo, Russell Strainer, and George A. Romero. The Latent Image not only did segments for Mr. Rogers, but they would also work on producing commercials for local businesses. This is of particular interest because since the advent of television, most advertising was done live. It wasn't until we got into the 1960s that companies started producing 30 to 60 second long commercials to run during breaks in the programming. One thing that both the Mr. Rogers segments and the commercials that the Leighton Image made had in common was that they were shot on 35mm film. Romero and company were learning new techniques and skills with every commercial and segment that they would produce. They were also building strong relationships in the city of Pittsburgh with everyone from film developers, business owners, and even the police. After experiencing modest success with the commercials they had produced, the crew at the Leighton Image decided it was time to make the jump into filmmaking. They bounced around a few ideas for what type of film they would make and ultimately decided on a horror movie. The main reasons why were one, horror films could be produced for a very low budget, and two, horror films tended to turn a profit because the production costs were so low. But what kind of horror film would they make? Up until that point, there was only a few subgenres, 
with monsters and alien invaders being the most popular. But with so much social upheaval going on in the world, the filmmakers knew that they had to make a movie that would address, albeit subconsciously, the tumultuous times. Drawing inspiration from Richard Matheson's novel I Am Legend, Romero and Russo wrote a script about an epidemic sweeping the world, a situation that would plague everyone regardless of social standing or race. They wrote a story about a world in which the dead would come back to life and hunt down the living for one purpose, to eat them. George Romero formed a new production company called Image 10, and he and nine other investors each kicked in $600 for a total budget of $6,000. With that money, they bought the film stock that they needed and rented a farmhouse on the outskirts of Pittsburgh. Romero was the director, editor, and co-writer of the project. Image 10 cast friends and family for all the lead roles in Zombies. Now, with the $6,000 budget exhausted on the film stock and the farmhouse they rented, the cast and crew worked for free. This was a true passion project. There were no trailers for the actors, no craft services to provide meals, and if something on the set broke down, production would be put on hold indefinitely until either the money or the means to fix the problem were resolved. Let's not forget that no one in the crew had any experience in feature filmmaking. Everyone was learning on the job, and most had double if not triple duties on the set. Makeup artists were often used as extras, set builders would also hold boom mics. Even Russo, who was a producer, donned zombie makeup for several scenes. The thing about the production of Night of the Living Dead is that everyone involved believed in what was happening. And what was happening was one of the first true independent films. There was zero involvement with Hollywood. The thing that Romero was able to do was reach out to his contacts that he had made in Pittsburgh. Romero was friends with a local TV reporter and was able to get him to agree to not only be in the film, but he was also able to get use of that same television station's traffic helicopter for the aerial shots that are seen in the film. Now, all of the police in Night of the Living Dead are actual Pittsburgh police officers who agreed to take part in the production. And for the most infamous scene in the film involving zombies devouring their victims, Romero had a friend who worked in a meatpacking plant and had him provide the necessary props for that shot. So without going into greater detail, let's just say that the extras who played the zombies were committed to the accuracy of their roles. Night of the Living Dead opens up with a brother and sister traveling to a cemetery to lay a cross on their mother's grave. There's a level of bickering between the two as they talk about the amount of time it took to get to the cemetery and the fact that it'll be after midnight before they get back. It's while there that the sister, Barbara, is attacked by a crazed old man, and her brother Johnny jumps to the rescue, only to be killed by the attacker. Barbara desperately makes a run for it, with the old man chasing her through a field. Barbara spots a farmhouse in the distance, and then makes the decision to hide there. While hiding in the house, she hears the old man pounding on the door trying to get in. She then hears the sound of a truck pulling up to the house. As she opens the door, she is blinded by the truck's headlights, and the driver emerges and takes down the old man with a tire iron. He rescues Barbara, and the two decide to continue to seek refuge in the farmhouse. It's at this point in the film that we realize that the man who arrived in the pickup truck, Ben, is the protagonist of the movie. He's the hero who will protect Barbara from the numerous zombies starting to amass outside the farmhouse. Ben, who is played by Dwayne Jones, is an African-American, and it was virtually unheard of in the history of movies up until that point to have an African-American not only play the lead role, but also the hero of the story. George Romero stated that when he wrote the part of Ben, the character wasn't written as African-American. Romero said that Dwayne Jones, hands down, had the best audition, and he was perfect for the part. Anyhow, that's where I found that truck I have out there. There's a radio in the truck. I jumped in to listen to it. 
when a big gasoline truck came screaming right across the road with it must have been 10, 15 of those things chasing after it, grabbing and holding on. Now, I didn't see them at first. I could just see that the truck was moving in a funny way. Those things were catching up to it. The truck went right across the road. Slammed on my brakes to keep from hitting it myself. It went right through the guardrail. I guess, I guess the driver must have cut off the road into that gas station by Beekman's Diner. It went right through the billboard, ripped over a gas pump, and never stopped moving. By now, it was like a moving bonfire. Didn't know if the truck was going to explode or what. Could still hear the man screaming. Now, one of the most important aspects of Night of the Living Dead is that throughout the entire film, no character remarks even once that Ben is black. Ben is clearly the natural leader of the group, and the film has been praised for this choice. Now, spoiler alert. At the end of the film, Ben is shot dead by a mob of gunmen hunting the zombies. Ben is seen in the window of the farmhouse, and the shooter is too far away to make an accurate determination if he's human or zombie and takes the shot. This scene did invoke some outrage. But again, Romero stresses that in the script, even before Dwayne Jones was cast, this was always going to be the outcome for that character. The scene was meant to instill the bleakness of the situation by letting the viewer know that there was never going to be a positive outcome for anyone in the film. Once the crew finished principal photography, there was a major problem. They had no money to finish the film in post-production. Things like sound mixing, musical score, lab printing. Hell, there wasn't any money to hire an artist to commission a movie poster. All they had was spools of film that Romero could edit together. As he slowly pieced the film together, he would show parts of the movie to potential investors. And slowly but surely, Romero was able to raise the capital needed to finish the film. One more piece of the puzzle was left. He had a finished film. Now we needed a distributor to show the film in theaters. Now, several things were going against Image 10 and Romero. The film was in black and white when most films were in color, and theater owners were reluctant to show black and white films. The cast was completely unknown, so there was no bankable stars to help with the promotions, and the film had an African-American in its lead role. In April of 1968, Romero took a print of the film to New York to be screened for potential distributors. And as expected, the majority of distributors turned it down. A few, however, were interested. American International, who is known for distributing B-horror films, came on board, but only if they changed the ending, citing that it was just too dark. Holding firm, Romero and company said no to making any changes, and it took hiring a professional sales company to handle getting the film's distribution, and they landed a deal with the Walter Reed organization, who accepted the film as is without any changes. So on October 2nd, 1968, Night of the Living Dead was released in theaters. But now wait just a second. The MPAA rating system had not yet gone into effect that year. And most horror films were considered safe for kids and were shown mostly on Saturday afternoon matinee shows. Night of the Living Dead was no exception. And film reviewer Roger Ebert attended one of these matinee showings when he was reviewing the film. What he witnessed was shocking to him and he couldn't believe there were small children without parents in the audience. He wrote, quote, The kids in the audience were stunned. There was almost complete silence. The movie had stopped being delightfully scary about halfway through and had become unexpectedly terrifying. There was a little girl across the aisle from me, maybe nine years old. 
who was sitting very still in her seat and crying. It's hard to remember what sort of effect this movie might have had on you when you were six or seven, but try to remember, at that age, kids take the events on screen seriously, and they identify fiercely with the hero. When the hero is killed, that's not an unhappy ending, but a tragic one. Nobody got it alive. It's just over. That's all. End quote. The review that Ebert wrote only added to the film's mystique. And after some extremely positive reviews from notable European film critics, Night of the Living Dead began to gain serious momentum. Even the Museum of Modern Art in New York began to screen the film on a regular basis. So, how much money did the Night of the Living Dead make? Well, some estimates put it at around $42 million. How much money did, did Romero and Image 10 make off the film? Well, that's pretty simple. Nothing. The film was originally called Night of the Flesh Eaters. When the Walter Reed organization took over the distribution rights, they changed the title to Night of the Living Dead, but they made a fatal error. On the on-screen title card, when Night of the Living Dead pops up, they forgot to include the copyright logo. You know that little letter C with the circle around it? Well, that symbol is necessary on any print to show that it's copyrighted, and if it's not there, then that print of the film can go into what's known as public domain, and anyone can show that film and make money from it. Now, the Walter Reed organization went bankrupt a few years later after the release, and all money it made from the film went to pay creditors, so there was nothing left for Image 10. And since numerous copies of the print without the copyright symbol were made, the film was being shown in markets around the world, with none of the profits going to the filmmakers. This is why when you see DVD box sets that have 10, 20, even 30 horror films on them, Night of the Living Dead is always included. It's usually the selling point for those DVD box sets. The fact is that you, the listener, right now, you could buy a copy of that movie from Walmart, show it in a movie theater, charge whatever you want for tickets, you could keep all of the profits, and none of that would be illegal. This was a mistake that George Romero vowed to never let happen again. Now let's move ahead to 1974. By this time, Romero had released three more films, including The Crazies in 1973, a film about a biohazard spill that caused its victims to have homicidal reactions. These films failed at the box office and failed with critics. It was, however, while in a shopping mall in 1974 that Romero, who was being given a behind-the-scenes tour at how the mall operated, came up with a thought. If the apocalypse broke out... A person could survive for quite a while in a mall with all the stores and amenities. He began working on a script for the follow-up to Night of the Living Dead, entitled Dawn of the Living Dead. Now, you would think, given the success of the first Night of the Living Dead, that securing the finances needed for this project would be no problem. However, this was not the case at all, and Romero found no domestic funding deals to make this film happen. So he shelved the project. Over in Europe, Night of the Living Dead was huge. It had a bigger fan base than in America, and when word got out to famed horror director Dario Argento that Romero wanted to make a sequel but couldn't get the funding, Argento came to the rescue. He helped Romero secure financing needed, although there was a catch. Argento would have international distribution rights. So this time around, Romero had a $650,000 budget, but it wasn't until 1977 that shooting began on what was now titled Dawn of the Dead. The majority of the film was shot on location at the Monroeville Mall in Pennsylvania. The shooting had to be done while the mall was not open for business. And since it was the holiday season, that meant a filming window from only 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. each night. The normal question, the first question is always, are these cannibals? No, they are not cannibals. Cannibalism in the true sense of the word implies an interspecies activity. These creatures cannot be considered human. They prey on humans. 
They do not prey on each other. That's the difference. They attack and they feed only on warm human flesh. Intelligence, seemingly little or no reasoning power, but basic skills remain a more remembered behaviors from uh, normal life. There are reports of these creatures using tools, but even these actions are the most primitive. The use of external articles as bludgeons and so forth. I might point out to you that even animals will adopt the basic use of tools in this manner. These creatures are nothing but pure motorized instinct. Their only drive is for food, the food that sustains them. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. They, they must be destroyed on sight. Now, a lot had changed in the 10 years since Night of the Living Dead had been released, not the least of which was the MPAA's rating system, which now meant that Romero could really up the ante when it came to the gore factor in Dawn of the Dead. And he turned to Tom Savini, a special effects wizard who had pioneered some of the most convincing practical special effects that are still used in some films today. Savini, who was a Pittsburgh native, was actually set to come on board and help out with the original Living Dead film. That was until he was drafted into the army and sent to Vietnam. While serving as a combat photographer in Vietnam, Savini was witness to some of the true horrors of war, and a lot of his special effects work is based on what he saw and photographed while in the bush. Since the film was going to be in color, the zombies had to have a defined look, and it was Savini that added the light blue and gray look. This was to enhance the fact that only the zombies' brains were working, and since there was no blood flowing to their bodies, the skin lost most of its color. The film had more than 300 extras at the time, and it took a crew of eight to spread paint them each night before shooting. Just like Night of the Living Dead was a microcosm of social unrest in the 1960s, many believe that Dawn of the Dead was a microcosm for consumerism, or at least foreshadow what would become the overconsumption of the 1980s. Well, I say either way you look at this film, it has one hell of a punch. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. Many consider this the crowning achievement for the entire zombie genre, not just Romero-made films, but all zombie films. Roger Ebert gave the film four out of four stars, calling it the best horror film ever made. Let's go back for a second. Remember I said that Dario Argento had the rights to the film internationally. He also had final cut rights, which means that he could make any changes he wanted for any version released overseas. It's for this reason that there are at least five different cuts of the film in circulation. Romero had final cut for the domestic version of the film, and when he submitted it to the Motion Picture Association of America for a rating, it was sent right back to him with an X rating, which meant that almost no theater would show the film. He made the decision to release the film unclassified and made no edits. And the film made just a little over $5 million domestically, which is okay. That's not a huge amount of money, but it was definitely on a $650,000 budget. That was a fair bit. But it was the Dario Argento cuts of the film that grossed almost $50 million worldwide. As of recording this episode, from what I've been able to find, there are at least three different versions of this film in its entirety on YouTube. But be warned, they are beyond violent. And Dawn of the Dead is still the highest grossing film in the entire franchise. Now, at the same time Dawn of the Dead was being produced, Night of the Living Dead co-writer John Russo wrote the novel Return of the Living Dead. It was a direct sequel to the film. 
the book took place 10 years after the events of Night of the Living Dead, where everything is essentially back to normal. However, a series of strange events start to occur and the dead begin to rise again. The book was a hit with horror fans, and after the huge success of Dawn of the Dead, Russo was able to get a film development deal for his novel. However, once producers got the rights to the novel, they didn't convert his story into the screenplay. They instead went with a completely new story centered around a storage facility that's next to a graveyard in a crematorium. In 1985's Return of the Living Dead, the movie The Night of the Living Dead exists and is part of the pop culture, although it's explained in Return of the Living Dead that the events in Night of the Living Dead are actually based on actual events. And in the basement of the storage facility, there are army barrels containing comatose zombies. Frank? Yeah, kid. What's the weirdest thing you've ever saw in here? Kid... I have seen weird things come, and I have seen weird things go. But the weirdest thing I ever saw just had to cap it all. Oh, yeah? (laughs) What's that? Let me ask you a question, kid. Did you see that movie, Night of the Living Dead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one where the corpses start eating the pupil, right? Sure. What, What about it? Did you know that movie was based on a true case? Oh, come on. You're shitting me, right? I ain't never been more serious in my life. That's not possible. I mean, they showed zombies taking over the world. Well, they changed it all around. What really happened was, back in 1969 in Pittsburgh at the VA hospital, there was a chemical spill and all that stuff kind of leaked down into the morgue and it made all the dead bodies kind of jump around as though it was alive. What chemical? Two, four, five trioxin, it's called. It was to kind of spray on marijuana or something. And the Darrow Chemical Company was trying to develop it for the army. And they told the guy who made the movie that if he told the true story, they'd just sue his ass off. So he changed all the facts around. So what really happened? Well, they closed it all down, see? And the army shipped all that contaminated dirt and all those dead bodies out. And they kept it a secret. So how come you know about it? What typical army fuck up? The transportation department got the orders crossed. And they shipped those bodies here. Instead of the Darrow Capital Company. Well, one thing leads to another and all hell breaks loose. Now, Return of the Living Dead made no attempts at dark humor and strayed away from the dead serious tones of both Living and Dawn of the Dead. But Return of the Living Dead did become a cult hit with teens who were probably too young to remember the real impact and the real reason why Night of the Living Dead was so successful. Return of the Living Dead spawned four sequels, and by the time it made it to the fifth film, They were having a rave at the grave. Side note, the last two Return of the Living Dead films were filmed in Romania, star Peter Coyote, and were sold to the Sci-Fi Network as Sci-Fi Original Films. Not wanting his work to be upstaged by the semi-slapstick Return of the Living Dead, George Romero got to work on what he considered his opus of the Living Dead franchise, Day of the Dead, or at least that's what he had planned. Initially, he was able to secure a $7 million budget, but once the studio heads that were financing the film got word that Romero wasn't planning on toning down any of the gore in the movie in order to secure an R rating. They slashed his budget in half. Now just working with $3.5 million, 
he had to rewrite the entire script. Instead of focusing on a city that was fully functional despite the zombie outbreak, Romero decided to tell the story of just a handful of survivors taking refuge in an underground military complex. It was science versus firepower. You had the military men who wanted nothing more than to escape to a place where there were no zombies, and then you had the scientists who were set on studying the zombies and trying to learn how to control them. The tension between the two factions is a powder keg ready to blow. I'm not down in this cave for my health. I'm down here on orders. Your orders are to facilitate the job of this scientific team. This is a civilian team, Captain, and we don't have to be subjected to your tyranny. Who's being subjected to what, Fisher? You've lost one man. We've lost five. Where does it say we got to keep those dumb fucks next door to where we sleep? Where does it say we should do any one thing but shoot the mothers in the head? We don't have enough ammunition, Captain, to shoot them all in the head. Time to have done that would have been at the beginning. No, we let them overrun us. They have overrun us, you know. We're in the minority now. Something like 400,000 to one by my calculations. You were supposed to be here at seven o'clock sharp, mister. I know, Sarah told me. I'm sorry I couldn't break away. Is there food? Listen, egghead, let me bring you up to date on what's been... Let me... Excuse me! Is there food? I'm running this monkey farm now, Frankenstein, and I want to know what the fuck you're doing with my time! If we're just jerking off here... I'm going to have my men blow the piss out of those precious specimens of yours. And we're going to get the hell out of here and leave you and your highfalutin asshole friends to rot in this stinking sewer. Is that food enough for you? Once again, Tom Savini was brought on board to handle the special effects, some of which bordered on the extreme. Now, even though the film had the largest budget of the first three films, audiences complained that it felt small in size and in scope compared to Dawn of the Dead. Now, what's interesting about the release of Day of the Dead was that before it was released in theaters in America, it had already been released on VHS worldwide, and the film had made a $30 million profit. In the U.S., however... The film made a lackluster $5.8 million. I will say that George Romero states that this is his favorite of the Dead trilogy. In 1990, the original Night of the Living Dead crew got back together to make a remake of the film. The script was rewritten by Romero, who made a few major changes, particularly to the character of Barbara, who was now a strong person who was able to hold her own while fighting zombies. <laughs> Whatever I lost, I lost a long time ago, and I do not plan on losing anything else. You can talk to me about losing it when you stop screaming at each other like a bunch of two-year-olds. And since Tom Savini wasn't able to participate in the original production, Romero handed him not only the special effects duties, but also the directing duties. Now, Tom Savini did do something that Romero didn't do. He bowed to the pressure and made the necessary cuts to avoid an NC-17 rating. Now, NC-17 rating was introduced the same year, and it replaced the X rating. Unfortunately, critics loathed the film, and as fast as it was in theaters, it was out. The film had a $4.2 million budget and grossed only $5.8 million worldwide. The 90s was a quiet period for the zombie genre. 
Sure, there were a few direct-to-video films, but films like Scream ushered in the hip horror film, and slow-moving zombies were just not in style. It would be 12 years after the 1990 remake that filmgoers would get a new look at the now-classic formula of a worldwide outbreak. But this time it wasn't the dead coming back to life. It was a virus that caused people to become infected. The film was 2002's 28 Days Later, and it was directed by Danny Boyle, who wasn't known to many in the horror community, but he had rose to prominence with his drug-fueled black comedy train spotting. Now, although this film was in no way connected to the Romero franchise, there were many parallels to the series. However, there was one thing that set 28 Days Apart. The zombie-slash-infected could run and could run fast. Now, 28 Days Later was a huge hit in both its native England and around the world, and it had a follow-up sequel in 2007, the very, very, I can't stress enough, very underrated 28 Weeks Later, which I think is a superb film that's worthy of your time. 2004 saw Universal Pictures release a remake of Dawn of the Dead. The film was directed by a first-time filmmaker, Zack Snyder. Maybe you've heard of him. Like the original... This remake was set in a shopping mall. But unlike the original Dawn of the Dead, which only had three main characters, that is until the biker gang shows up, 2004's Dead had a much larger cast. And for the first time in the franchise, the zombies could run, a clear inspiration from 28 Days Later. The film also has a few notable actors, including Ving Rings and Sarah Polly. How did you get out? You gave me permission to loot the goddamn store. What are we going to do about that truck? We're not going to do anything about that truck. There's people in it. Yeah? And how do you know they're not all fucked up like everybody else out there? Well, for one thing, they're driving a truck. Oh, and shooting guns? If we start letting people in here, we're going to let the wrong ones in, and then I'm dead. And you know what? I don't want to die. We're the wrong ones. Nobody here is sick, and I intend on keeping it that way. Look, I just think we should... I did not ask for your opinion, lady! Now, if you want to argue with me, you can argue with this. Hey, hey, take it easy. Shut your fucking mouth. Get the gun out of my face. You can't just turn them away, CJ. You'll kill them. Tough shit. Self-defense. I'm not killing anybody. You know what? I'll kill you. No, no, no. Stop it, CJ. Don't do this. Shut up! I'll kill each and every one of you to stay alive. You hear me? I said get the fucking gun out of my face! Ooh. You got quite a mouth on you. Somebody should show her how to use it. Is there a holding cell in there? Yeah. yeah. Back in the security room. That's real good, man. You're gonna get us all killed, dumbass. Fucking traitor. Stop me. Hey. I hope you got a good plan. And the Dawn of the Dead remake was also a big hit in theaters, taking in 102 million. And I'm gonna tell you right now, that is a ton of money for an R-rated horror film. I remember sitting in a movie theater in 2004. I remember one of the trailers was for a British film with actors I didn't recognize, and upon first glance, the trailer presented the film as sort of a romantic comedy. But halfway through, zombies appeared on the screen. So what was I looking at? A comedy with zombies? You know how some trailers can make a shitty movie look good? while other trailers can make a great movie look bad. Well, this trailer didn't do the film justice at all. I remember at the time dismissing the film as something I had no interest in seeing. So fast forward to the fall of that same year. I'm walking aimlessly through a local movie gallery video store. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I can spend a few hours in a video store, and it was 50-50 whether or not I'd even rent anything. On this particular visit, I came across a DVD cover. The film was called Shaun of the Dead. I was asking myself, why does this seem so familiar? 
And then it hit me. Oh, wait, this was that zombie comedy trailer I saw in the theaters back in the summer. With my patience wearing thin, I said, what the hell, I'll give this film a shot. When I got home, I settled in, popped it in the DVD player, dimmed the lights, and pressed play. So, what's the plan? Right. We take Pete's car, we drive over to Mum's, we go in, take care of Philip. I'm so sorry, Philip. Then we grab Mum, we go over to Liz's place, pull up, have a cup of tea, and wait for all this to blow over. Why have we got to go to Liz's? Because we do. She dumped you. I have to know if she's all right. Why? Because I love her. All right, gay. I'm not staying there, though. Why not? If we hole up, I want to be somewhere familiar, I want to know where the exits are, and I want to be allowed to smoke. Okay. Take Pete's car, go round Mum's, go in, deal with Philip. Sorry, Philip. Grab Mum, go to Liz's, pick her up, bring her back here, have a cup of tea, and wait for all this to blow over. Perfect. No, 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 wait, we can't bring her back here. Why not? Well, it's not exactly safe, is it? Mm, yeah. The state of it. Where's safe? Where's familiar? Where can I smoke? Take on, go to Mum's, kill Phil. Sorry. Grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! Vital that you stay in your homes, make no attempt to reach loved ones, and avoid all physical contact with the assailants. Do you believe everything you hear on TV? Now, there are a few times in your life that you will experience true film magic. The kind of magic that takes you out of your mundane life and puts your focus so steadfast on what you're watching that for that two hours, everything is golden. For me, Shaun of the Dead was one of those films. The movie is beyond brilliant in its execution of not only its comedy, but its satire of the zombie genre. Starring Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and directed by Edgar Wright, Shaun of the Dead is very self-aware and handles its tribute to Romero's films with grace and respect. The film was a huge hit in England and Romero was given a private screening at his home in Florida. Romero so loved the film that he reached out to Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright and told them that he was bringing the Dead series back and would love for them to come to Toronto and visit the set. He even gave them a cameo in his next film as two zombies. The film in question, Land of the Dead, came out in 2005, 20 years after Romero's last zombie film, Day of the Dead. This time around, Romero had a huge budget by the standard of the other films in the franchise, $15 million. And he was finally able to revisit the idea of a city that was flourishing in the middle of chaos. The world as we know it. They must be destroyed. Is no more. Cities are under siege. The land of the living has become. Feeding up human flesh. The land of the dead. If these creatures ever develop the power to think, to reason, we're all dead. In one last outpost. It was my ingenuity that took an old world and made it into something new. We have survived. Rivers protect us on two sides. I put up the fences to make it safe. And these fences go all the way across? Both ways. But if the living can adapt... Things are changing. These guys are not just walking. So can the dead. It's like they're pretending to be alive.
mindless walking corpses. They'll never get across the river. Like his other films, there was always an underlying message. And this one was exploring the class issue, with only the very rich living in a luxury high-rise, while others in the city lived in extreme poverty. All the while, guards are stationed on the perimeter to keep the living dead out. With a much larger budget, Romero was able to cast recognizable actors in the film, including Dennis Hopper, Simon Baker, and John Leguizamo. Romero also did something that he had never done before in the franchise. He agreed to make the necessary cuts in order to secure an R rating. The idea behind this about face was that Romero understood the power of the DVD market, and he knew that he'd be able to release his director's cut without any resistance. Romero was also quick to reset the balance of his zombies by making them slow walking again. The film was met with a lot of critical praise, and many were happy that Romero finally got the proper budget. And it begs the question, how much better would the original Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead been if Romero was given the kind of budget he had on this film to work with? Land of the Dead grossed $46 million in theaters, and it also did extremely well in the home video market. 2008 saw the fifth release in the Dead franchise, Diary of the Dead. Now, this was not a direct sequel to Land of the Dead, but a standalone film set in the same universe. Dire of the Dead takes place during the events of Night of the Living Dead, telling the story from the perspective of different cameramen. Like the other films in the series, there is an underlying message, and this film questions society's dependence on 24-hour news to get their information. Like in Night of the Living Dead, there are several news broadcasts that can be heard throughout the film. Simon Pegg, Quentin Tarantino, and Stephen King lent their voices to some of those broadcasts. Romero independently financed the film, raising a $2 million budget. But for the first time, Romero embraced the use of CGI effects, and the film was shot in a digital format. He was able to get the film distributed through Dimension Films, and the film received mixed reviews and currently holds a 62% on Rotten Tomatoes. In 2009, the sixth film in the series, Survival of the Dead, was released. This was the first film in the series to be met with a negative backlash. Once again, Romero had independently financed the film and was working with a $4 million budget. But this was the first film to be released not so much in theaters, but in a new and up-and-coming format, Video On Demand. The fact is that the film was only screened in 20 theaters and has a total box office gross of just $143,000. Romero has been quoted as saying he'd like to make at least two more in the Living Dead franchise. I think it's safe to say that although George Romero didn't invent the zombie genre, he perfected it. Neither of the Living Dead's influences can be felt in pop culture with shows like The Walking Dead in books like The Zombie Survival Guide. Films like World War Z, parodies, video games, everywhere the zombie influence can be felt. The number of zombie films that have been made worldwide are too many to list. Now, yesterday I tweeted out, what's the best American-made zombie film and why? I asked for some answers. Colin McDonald tweeted, the original Dawn of the Dead. Gruesome, brilliant, and set the standards for everything that's come since. All right, and some friends of the show, the guys over at Hard to Swallow Podcast tweeted, Love George Romero's original Night of the Living Dead so much. It walks the line between elegant and classless, much like Psycho did. And then Jesse, and Jesse, I'm just, I'm not going to try to pronounce your last name because I just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pronounce it right. But Jesse, you know who you are because you tweeted me. You wrote a response to what Hard to Swallow wrote. And you said, it tackles racism without even trying, way ahead of its time, a top 10 for me. 
Colin, Jesse, and the guys over at Hard to Swallow, I appreciate you guys getting back to me on this one. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Romero's work and what kind of influence he may have had on you. Feel free to email me at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. So my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening. There's not a lot of fun making in the process of making any film. Uh, there's There may be more fun in making a zombie film than there is in making, you know, uh some sort, you know, War of the Worlds or I, poor Guillermo del Toro gets stuck on these huge projects like Mimic and this thing he just finished here, which I, I think is still untitled. Absolutely no fun there. Uh, we can occasionally have a little bit of fun. I love working. I, I work with, I've always worked in, in Pittsburgh and now in Canada with a family of people, try to work with the same people. Startup costs are difficult uh, on any relationship, and so what happens is if you if if you know the guy, if I know the DP, if I know him well, I can just say you know it's one of those, and that's all it takes. And so I, I love to work with the same people all, as much as possible, and to that extent, you can have some fun making a film, but. Um, the fun is uh, scattered, you know. It's every once in a while. It's not all the time. It's grueling making a, a movie, particularly working with uh, low budgets. It reports, incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. First eyewitness accounts of this grisly development came from people who were understandably frightened and almost incoherent. Officials and newsmen at first discounted there was eyewitness descriptions as being beyond belief. However, the reports persisted. Medical examinations of some of the victims bore out the fact that they had been partially devoured. I think we have some late words of just arriving, and I'll interrupt to bring this to you. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. It's hard for us here to believe what we're reporting to you, but it does seem to be a fact. When this emergency first began, radio and television was advising people to stay inside, behind locked doors for safety. Well, that situation has now changed, and we're able to report a definite course of action for you. Civil defense machinery has been organized to provide rescue stations with food, shelter, medical treatment, and protection by armed National Guardsmen. Stay tuned to the broadcasting stations in your local area for this list of rescue stations. This list will be repeated throughout our news coverage. Look for the name of the rescue station nearest you and make your way to that location as soon as possible. Since convening, this conference of the Presidential Cabinet, the FBI, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the CIA, has not produced any public information. Why are space experts being consulted about an Earth-bound emergency? So far... All the betting on the answer to that question centers on the recent Explorer satellite shot to Venus. That satellite, you'll recall, started back to Earth, but never got here. That's the space vehicle which orbited Venus and then was purposely destroyed by NASA 
when scientists discovered it was carrying a mysterious high-level radiation with it. Could that radiation be somehow responsible for the wholesale murders we're now suffering? Coming to get you, Barbara.